Scott Wiley, our uh, children's pastor, uh, who also serves as the mayor of Colonial Corners, which is our church program, you know, for third through fifth graders. It's an amazing uh, ministry. I'm so thrilled with what God is doing with our young people. It's just thrilling, isn't it, to see all of these young people serving Christ and singing and studying the Word together. And Well, uh, Scott has uh, third through fifth graders led by an amazing cast of actors and actresses. They have original scripts for every Sunday, unless you think it's just all fluff they actually went through, and I saw their scripts. The Attributes of God, recently. Pretty insightful stuff. Once a year, uh, Scott compiles the questions that the kids have asked. They've got a question box. He compiles the questions that they have asked over that year, and then he sends it around to the staff, and every year I pull them off and read them. Questions like, I'll give you a few of them. Pretty, pretty inquisitive questions here. I'll, I'll read the first one. Does God celebrate holidays? Interesting. Here's another. Why do people think they can lie to God and get away with it? What does it mean that God has no beginning? He had to have a beginning. Love that one. Why did God make earth if he could make us and we could go straight to heaven? Love this one here. What's so bad about the plague with the frogs? <laughs> What's so bad about frogs? <laughs> it's an easy kid to raise. Some moms went, oh my. Here's another one. If God knows what you pray before you pray it, then why do we pray? Already asking that question as a third grader. How old is God? Another. Can I have doubts and still be a Christian? How do we know that the Bible is true? Tough questions. Here's one. Will my cat be in heaven? No way. That's easy to answer as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Everything in heaven is happiness. We know cats are never happy. Great questions, aren't they? Aren't you glad Pastor Scott's answering these questions for us? Maybe you want to get emailed the answers while you ask it. I'm sure he might even send them to you. And out of all the passages in the Bible that have raised questions about the truthfulness or the veracity of Scripture, certainly Jonah and the whale would have to rank high on the list, wouldn't it? A woman in our fellowship came up and talked to me and then sent me this at my request, a little bit of her testimony and how her own personal struggle with the truth actually converged with uh, the book of Jonah. She wrote this, 20 years ago, as an unsaved Catholic, I was preparing to teach my Sunday school class what the church calls, quote, the children's liturgy of the word. From this material, I was preparing to teach Jonah and the whale, explaining to my children that the Catholic church believes it wasn't a true story, The children's liturgy of the word simply told it as a story used by God to teach a lesson regarding obedience. When I read that, by the way, I couldn't help but stop and think, what would that lesson be? If you disobey God, don't go near water, would that be it? Imagine that. In the middle, she writes, of explaining this to my children, my unsaved Presbyterian husband walked through and overheard me and said, of course that story is true. He believed it. God planted in me a seed 
of truth that bothered me so much that I became desperate to know what was true. I prayed and asked the Lord to show me the truth, and several months later, while in my car, I heard a creation scientist explaining how the geology of the earth defended the great flood of Noah, something else that I had been told was, quote, just another story, end quote. My spirit was flooded by the confirmation that God's word was indeed true, all of it. This woman went on to tell how a few months later, again through Christian radio, she heard a clear gospel message and accepted Jesus Christ alone as her personal Savior. Imagine that. Jonah and the whale became the point of crisis which led her to repentance. Well, the truth is that whale is going to bring someone else to a point of crisis which leads to repentance. His name is Jonah. Now, we last saw him treading water before the lights went out. Let's pick it up there at chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, Without a doubt, ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the most criticized verses in the Bible, and this fish has been examined by more people than any other fish to ever swim the seven seas. In fact, as I studied and researched, I was amazed at all the different viewpoints out there relative to this, uh, this fish. One author suggested that what actually happened was when Jonah was thrown overboard, he was treading water, another ship named the fish just so happened to come by and rescued him from the ocean. Another author suggested that Jonah swam to dry ground and then stayed at an inn named The Fish, where he recuperated for three days and three nights. That brilliant, absolutely ingenious. A generation ago, skeptics were arguing that the throat of a whale was too small to even swallow an orange without difficulty. And there are some... Uh, for which it is. However, the examination and observations of the average sperm whale known to swim in the Mediterranean happens to have a throat 20 feet long, 15 feet high, 9 feet wide. That's large enough to swallow an 18-wheeler or a mobile home. What do you know? Marine biologists have also determined that a large fish would have enough air in its stomach for someone to breathe, but the temperature would be around 104 degrees Fahrenheit. I came across some, some research provided by the Princeton Theological Review in a 1927 issue, which effectively shut down much of the debate that someone could survive inside a whale or a great fish. It reported the verified case that occurred in 1891 on the whaling ship Star of the East, which was hunting in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands. This article went on to say that the journal did. The fishermen spotted a large sperm whale, sent out two smaller boats after it. One was able to harpoon it, but those in the second boat capsized in the process and one man drowned. A second sailor, James Bartley, disappeared and could not be found. In time, the whale was killed and drawn to the side of the ship where it was secured and divided up. The following day, the stomach was hoisted up on deck, and when it was opened, the missing sailor was found inside, unconscious, 
bleached white, but alive. He was revived and after a time resumed his duties on board the vessel. Well, according to Scripture, the truth is Jonah didn't get picked up by a boat named the, the fish. But let me, let me say this. I personally don't need to read a story about a man who was swallowed and verified by the Princeton Theological Review to believe uh, this account. All we really need is the record of Scripture that, by the way, without any apology and with very little description and certainly without any defense, simply records, and the Lord appointed a great fish. That's really enough. This is the Lord's doing. He prepared a fish for the job. The question is not, is there a big enough fish? The question is, is there a big enough God? And if your God is big enough, the God of the Bible, he can easily prepare a fish to do the job. Now, you might underline that phrase, the Lord appointed. It could be translated prepared. You could translate it assigned. You could render it commanded. All of those would be appropriate or simply appointed. Here you have the first reference to a fish given an assignment. Now, it won't be the last time, will it? Do you remember our Lord commanded a fish to gulp down a shekel, keeping it in its mouth, a coin about the size of a nickel, and then the Lord commanded it to take the hook that Peter would drop in, and the Lord told Peter that as soon as he dropped his hook in, he'd catch a fish, and that fish would have money in its mouth to pay for both their taxes. That's my kind of fishing right there. I want you to know. The Lord has commanded in the past ravens to carry bread to Elijah, his servant, down by the brook Kishon, 1 Kings 7. Fish don't carry money around in their mouths. Birds don't give bread to strangers unless they have been appointed by their creator, which is the point. Throughout this book, you have, in fact, God assigning or commanding his creation. That same nuance, by the way, will appear five different times. Let me give them to you quickly. The first one is here where we're told the Lord prepared a fish to swallow uh, and sustain Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. Over in chapter 2, verse 10, we read of the same fish being commanded by God to spit Jonah out. We read in... Chapter 4, verse 6, that God appointed a plant to grow quickly. You could underline there, appointed a plant. In verse 7, he commands a worm, probably a weevil, to destroy the root of the plant. And finally, the Lord appoints a hot east wind to blow upon Jonah, chapter 4, verse 8. The same Hebrew idea is, is carried through all five occasions of God's command, God's appointment over the creatures and elements of his created world. And, and don't miss the obvious. They were assigned. They were commanded by their creator. And they what? They obeyed the command. They fulfilled their assignment. I wonder if Jonah will catch it and get the message. Now, back in chapter 1, the Lord appointed this great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, try to imagine it for just a moment. 
As Jonah drops down into the belly of that fish and he feels perhaps the heat, breathing putrid air, realizes where he is, even though he's in the dark. He further recognizes that he is without hope. He is beyond help. Friends, God is allowing Jonah to experience a taste of what the Ninevites will experience in judgment without his message. Helplessness. Hopelessness. And he, perhaps, senses what this may mean, not only to one man, but to a nation. And so verse 1 of chapter 2, we don't know how long this took, but it says, it opens with, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. I'll bet he did. I would have. We're not exactly told when he prayed. Was it after he saw the fish coming with his mouth open? Did he pray then? Or maybe when he slid down the gullet into the fish's mouth and belly and landed in the dark cavern of the fish's belly? We're, we're not told. In fact, some scholars believe Jonah didn't pray at first. In fact, some Hebrew scholars believe that Jonah didn't pray until the third day. He was that stubborn. We can't be sure. What we do know is, is, is that it's possible to be, to be so fascinated with, with a fish that we overlook what happened in the heart of a runaway prophet, a prodigal prophet who finally, eventually, a day, two days, three days, at least by the end of the third night, he breaks and he prays. So let's work our way tonight through the only prayer in history ever recorded underwater. We're going to discover three critical ingredients to true, genuine repentance. Let me give you the first one. The first ingredient is admission. Admission. And he called or said, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of of Sheol. This is the grave. And you heard my voice. Now I want you to notice how Jonah admits this is God's hand of discipline. For you, you ought to circle that, you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. He is admitting that this is the hand of God. In fact, there is bound up in his words an admission that he actually deserves the hand of God in this way. I think of the counterpart to this, Hebrews chapter 5, which speaks of the discipline of of, of our Heavenly Father, according to that paragraph, we have several options. We can despise God's discipline and fight. We can fight it, verse 5. We can be discouraged by it and faint. Also, verse 5. We can resist it and invite stronger discipline, verse 6. Or we can submit to God and grow because of it, verse 7. Well, at this point, Jonah is no longer resisting the will of God. He is no longer rejecting the word of God. And he's about to re-enlist in the work of God. But, but first, there is admission of doing wrong and the right of God to discipline him. See, with that, just those opening lines, we're on our way to the second ingredient, and that is restoration, which he accepts 
admits his need of. Look at verse 4. So I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, up to this point, ladies and gentlemen, everything about the life of Jonah has been in the opposite direction of God's authority. So when he says, I will look again toward your holy temple, he's saying, I will look again to the place of your authority and sovereign rule. One author pointed out that the word that best characterized the life of Jonah up to this point is the word down. Jonah rose up to flee and went down to Joppa, the seaport. Jonah paid the fare and went down inside the ship. He gets swallowed and he goes down, as it were, effectively into the belly of the whale or fish. And now here he is going down into the deep abyss of the sea. Warren Wiersbe wrote it this way. He said, what a great metaphor for our lives. Whenever you run from God, the only direction you can go is down. But now, admitting his sin and turning back to the temple of God, which is a statement of recommitment for the Old Testament saying, in fact, that's taken right out of Scripture that Jonah evidently knew by heart and now he's drawing upon. This is Solomon's prayer of dedication when the temple was completed, Solomon prayed in 1 Kings at that dedication these words as he's praying to God, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the sin of his own heart, spreading his hands toward this house, the temple, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, And forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. 1 Kings 8, 38 and 39. In other words, for the Old Testament saint, they pray toward the temple. And here's Jonah. I don't think he knows which way is east. But he is in his heart praying toward imagining the glory of God. He is literally clinging to this promise in repentance and faith, and God will respond and move. Look at verse 5. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds, seaweed, is wrapped around my head. Can't imagine the horror of this. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with with its bars around me forever. In other words, there is no escape. Jonah is saying, I believe I am going to die. But, verse 6, the latter part, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Did you get that? He wouldn't pray before. He he, He wouldn't do anything but run from God. He didn't want to speak for God. He wouldn't even pray to God for the sake of the frantic sailors who were afraid of drowning. You remember that? I am not on speaking terms with God. I don't, I don't talk to God anymore. But now his heart's changed. You have brought up my life from the pit. Notice, oh, Lord, my God. It's personal again. Jonah prays in verse 7, while I was fainting away, you remembered, or I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. I was without hope, and I prayed to you, and you heard. 
Sinclair Ferguson writes, isn't it marvelous that God has mercy upon his servant Jonah before Jonah will preach that God will have mercy on Nineveh? So is it any wonder after all of this that the third ingredient of repentance is Beyond admission and restoration, the third one would be this, appreciation. Listen to Jonah as he prays now in verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Now keep in mind, Jonah has not been given a promise of deliverance. There was no message sent down in a bottle, you're going to get out as soon as you pray. None of that. He was... He wasn't thankful because he was back on dry land. He wasn't thankful that he hadn't drowned. I think he still at this point thinks he will drown. He's thankful that God has turned his heart back from a heart of rebellion and has caused him to call once again on the name of the Lord. He is thankful for his salvation. Seaweed wrapped around his head, up to his waist, chest in water, putrid air, hot. He thinks he's going to die, but suddenly he is filled with joy. Why? My heart of rebellion has returned to you, O God. You are my God. I've asked for forgiveness. I know you've forgiven me. Did you notice here, he says salvation belongs to the Lord. This wasn't so much a theological declaration as it is a personal confession of faith and praise. Notice also in verse 9, Jonah says he's going to sacrifice to God and pay his vows. Does that sound familiar? You go back to the sailors on deck as they convert to the God of Israel and they sacrifice an animal to God as is their, the custom of the Hebrew and evidently they knew enough to do that. And then they paid their vows This is the same vocabulary as the sailors who repented and claimed the God of Israel as their God. Sacrificed animals and vowed to serve them. What can Jonah sacrifice? I will sacrifice to you. He can't sacrifice an animal. He's been swallowed by one, for one thing. What can he sacrifice to God now? He's gone too far. What can he offer to God? The same thing you can and I can. In fact, when David repented and wrote that great hymn of repentance, he wrote, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Psalm fifty-one, seventeen. No matter how far you've run from God. No matter where you are right now, the enemy will say to you, you've gone too far. You now have nothing to offer God. Why would he want you? You can give him nothing. That's a lie. All of it lies. You can offer to God the sacrifices he loves most. No matter how far you've run, you can offer him the sacrifices of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And this is what Jonah does. He's offering to God the sacrifices of a repentant heart and a humbled spirit. And and then Jonah, not having had any guarantees prior to the sacrifices of his humility and 
of his own humility before God, God then moves to send the biggest case of indigestion any fish has ever experienced. And that fish spit up Jonah onto dry land. Look at verse 10. And God commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. God gave that fish the worst stomach egg ever. He couldn't digest a prophet. And he spit him up. Now that must have gathered a crowd. I bet it did. The prodigal prophet, and I think, though I can't prove it, that he was returned to Joppa. And it all started over again. But the prodigal prophet has returned his home again. In her book, Lois Kruger tells the story of her son Carl and something that happened when he was just four and a half weeks old. Lois and her husband had been having one of those hectic weeks and their son just seemed to be getting into more and more trouble, getting in the way and causing problems. And he was sent to the corner for some time, uh, for time out and over in the corner, he suddenly piped up and said, I'm going to run away from home. Lois stopped, she wrote, to remember that moment from her own childhood when she felt in the way, only able to do bad things, never in the right, even, even feeling a bit unloved. And she responded to him with unique wisdom. She said, okay, you can run away from home. He said, I can? Well, yes, you can. Come on, let's pack. She got his little suitcase down and hers as well and began to pick out her clothes. He said, Mama, what are you doing? She said, well, I'm going to need my coat and my pajamas and my shoes. She packed her things and placed both suitcases by the front door and and said, okay, are you sure you want to run away from home? And he said, I am. Where are you going? She said, well, if you're going to run away from home, then Mama's going with you because I would never want you to be alone. Isn't that good? I remember when one of my little guys years ago ran away for a few hours. I didn't think of this. I threatened him within an inch of his life. You try that again, boy. (laughs) How wise of this parent. How infinitely wise and gracious of our heavenly father. Jonah has run away. And yet when he's ready to call out to the Lord, he discovers that God is is ready to listen. Even in his darkest moments of despair and the lights out and the prison bars of the deep abyss are telling him, there's no way out of this. There's no way back. You are alone for good. Even there, even there, Jonah experiences communion with with God, the God he'd offended, right? The Lord he had spurned, but he repents. He is revived in his spirit. He is restored and re-enlisted. It struck me, no matter how long you stay silent, God will hear you when you're ready to talk. You also discover in, in those moments of reviving grace that, that 
as you've run away in sinful rebellion, imagine he has gone along too. He's gone along with you. Ladies and gentlemen, the most wonderful miracle in Jonah chapter 2 is not preservation in a fish, but restoration in the heart of a prodigal prophet who down, down deep in the belly of a whale actually came home. He, he has come home in the belly of a fish. Why? Because he's right with God. And when you're right with God, you are home.